0: Good morning. This morning we're coming to uh, a transition point in our years-long look at the first-century autobiography, or first-century biography of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, The story that we are about to read this morning uh, picks up an earlier thread in which some religious leaders have uh, decided that there is a serious problem with Jesus, and they decide to do something about it. Uh, This story follows the miraculous feeding, the storm at sea, and it takes place where the Jesus and the twelve, they start to go into an excursion into Gentile territory. And as Mark tells the story, this is Jesus' way of welcoming Gentiles in as citizens of God's kingdom. This, This moment that had long been prophesied and hinted at in the Old Testament, Jesus is saying definitively, it has come, it is here in me. And as you might imagine, that is a tough thing for the religious leaders to grapple with. And so with that, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, as Susie reads for us.
1: The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled Instead of eating their food with defiled hands, he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and honor who curses their father or mother. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Now, after he left, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? he asked. Don't you see that nothing enters a person from the outside, that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go in their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God.
0: And now, Almighty God, we ask by the power of your spirit that you would come upon us in our hearing, uh, that these would not simply be words on a page, but that they would get into our hearts and begin to shape them in your likeness. We ask this in the name of the one who is the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Back in chapter 3, verse 6, the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders came to a head. Mark writes this, the Pharisees then went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus back near the start of the gospel. So this has been hanging around kind of like a shadow in the background for quite some time. And Mark picks it back up when this group of Pharisees make a special trip to come out of their way to go into the region east Of Galilee, into the Decapolis, into the place where the Gentiles were, into the place where they never wanted to go. There's a strong Roman presence. And they ask Jesus why some, note, not all, but some of his disciples, are not following their traditions regarding cleanliness, regarding purity, regarding things like that. And it would be easy to dismiss this conversation and the debate and the controversy as you know, kind of small-minded religious pettiness or some sort of like weird esoteric hair-splitting about things that don't really have any sort of connection to the kind of lives that we live. I mean, after all, we're kind of like you know, modern educated people. Some of us have a pretty skeptical bent toward things like tradition. But I want to suggest that there is something here that's actually deeply human. This whole debate says something about us, regardless of what time, regardless of what culture we live in. A little bit of background. Pharisees were a reform movement within Judaism born out of the experience of exile. And if they had a theme verse, it would be this one from Leviticus 19.2. You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. They were a group that believed that violating the law, uh, abandoning all of the ritual purity codes, these were the reasons that God allowed Israel to be carted off into Babylonian captivity. That this was the reason why God allowed them still to be dominated by the Gentile nations. Israel had lost a way. Pharisees were looking for a way back. And if forsaking the law is what got them into this mess then holiness under the law was going to be their way out, out of exile, out of oppression, into God's favor. And so they began to develop all kinds of traditions and expansions of the Torah, of the law, that over time began to kind of layer on top of each other. Hand-washing is one of those examples. Now believe it or not, there is no law in the Torah that requires all of God's people to wash their hands before they eat. Sorry, Grandma, it's just not in there. But the Pharisees, they developed this tradition of washing hands and feet before coming to the table to eat. It was an expansion of the law from Exodus, which required the high priest, whenever uh, he was engaging in his priestly duties, whenever he was making a sacrifice on behalf of the people for their sin, and he would go into the temple, he had to be, be clean, and his, his hands and feet, he had to wear a white linen robe that was without blemish before offering that atoning sacrifice for the sin of the people. It was a reminder to the people that they were spiritually unclean, They could not enter God's presence without some sort of spiritual purification. It was a way of taking their sin seriously. And it's not really that strange of an idea if you think about it. Like, you know, if you're going on a date, if you're going on a job interview or something like that, you're going to, you know, take a shower, you're going to put on clean clothes. I mean, I I took a shower, I brushed my teeth before I came here. All right, I, I took a shower. But, you know, if you imagine that your date or your interview was with God, you would probably step up that beauty regimen just a touch, right? So somewhere within the 400 years between, you know, the return of exile and the ministry and the life of Jesus, this had become the standard practice for everyone who followed the tradition of the Pharisees, that they would wash their hands, they would wash their feet before eating. And this was a way of kind of identifying with the high priest. of of setting aside every meal as an event, as a place in which God was present. And actually, it's, it's a pretty lovely vision when you think about it. It's, you know, every person is a priest, every home is a temple, every table is an offer. It's a way of acknowledging the sacredness of ordinary things, of acknowledging that God is present even in the common, in the mundane, So what's important to see is that the heart of the tradition was something good. It was to set apart the common parts of life and invite God to be present. Even something as simple as gathering for a meal at the table. It wasn't, uh, you know, unlike how we pray before we eat dinner. The point is, it's not just an empty act that they were engaged with. But like a lot of traditions over time, the original impulse gets buried underneath all of these different kind of layers. And for the first century in the Pharisees, they they took this ritual act, something that was only meant to be for the priests, and they expanded it to all the people and said, no, this actually is the only way to be holy and to be pleasing to God, to do these things. If, if holiness is the way to please God, then why not take what is meant for the priests and make it for all of the people? And here's the thing, right? Concern for God's holiness is not a bad thing. Jesus was all about God's holiness. Jesus is God's holiness. But Jesus also was fired up about all of the play acting all of the performance all of the all of the ways that it was just about self-justification of all about the, the cheap grace that they would pour on themselves instead of the transformed heart that actually looks and acts like God's holiness and Jesus agreed wholeheartedly with the Pharisees that we are you know we are uh, unclean before God he just disagreed wildly with them about what to do about it and where the source of that stain came from. For them, it was all about staying away from things that were impure, but for Jesus, he said, no, it goes deeper than that. In the language of Genesis, this, this root goes back to our ancestors who chose disobedience over, over autonomy and, 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 and dependence on God, and then the result was nakedness, the result was shame. And in the vision of the Bible, the thing that weighs us down throughout life, the thing that is most deeply kind of penetrated into our souls, the thing that's most deeply wrong with us, is not just the things done to us, not just the things that we do, but it is the why. Why do we do those things? The fruit of all the guilt, of all the shame that we carry around in our bones, passed down from generations, what the Bible calls sin. The stain that has led to the violation of all that is peaceful, all that is pure, all that is united in God's kingdom. It estranges us from ourselves, it estranges us from others, from all of creation, and worst of all, from God. Now, obviously, this explanation of the world and of humanity and of why things are the way that they are, it doesn't really suit our cultural sensibilities. You don't need me to remind you of that. Modern critics of religion, they, they often point out that like every culture had you know, purity laws. Every culture had taboos. Uh, they're rooted in our neurology, they say. Uh, our our sense of disgust. And so ancient people, they created a God who justified being revolted at the things that they are revolted at. They created moral laws about what was clean and what wasn't clean uh, to kind of order society and to develop this honor and shame culture about who was in, who was out to kind of keep people in line. Uh, or if not that, they say, you know, that all these laws came about as a result of our deeply human desire to try to wrestle some control over our destinies. Even if that sense of control ends up just being an illusion, we try anyway. And so we, we conjured up all these moral absolutes and a God that needed to be pleased somehow by what we do. So that when things go wrong, we can point to, oh, well, we've we've offended God. We need to do something different. And sacrifice is all about giving ourselves a sense of control, a sense of agency in this chaotic and frightful world. And that is why ancient people were so racked with guilt, they say. But now, you know, we've kind of moved on from myths. And The best that we can do is just kind of bump around in this big cloud of unknowing. I mean, sure, you shouldn't, you know, murder, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't be a jerk or anything like that. But, I mean, consent, right? It takes care of all the rest. You know, drink some tea, calm down, move on with your life. But the thing is, if, if all of these are just relics of the past that we have outgrown, then why is our culture still racked with so much guilt? Why do we, if we no longer believe as a culture in sin or judgment, why do we carry around this sense that there is something deeply wrong with us? And sure. I mean, we can you know psychologize it. We can say it's a result of our upbringing. We can blame it on the residuals of our cultural inheritance. We can pass the blame in all kinds of ways. But either way, it's still there. On on this soul level, we feel exposed. We feel this need to hide. I love how the writer Philip Roth captures this modern sense of unease. He does it so well in his novel The Human Stain. Uh, His protagonist in that story is a man named Coleman Silk. He is a uh, humanities professor, a secular guy, and his outlook, he's at an elite New England University, and he becomes embroiled in a controversy fairly early on in the story. And clearing his name would actually be remarkably easy for him to do. The thing that he's accused of doesn't make any sense, given who he is, but he has built this identity structured on layer and layer of deceits. He can't, he, can't, you know, he can't disclose who he is, the secret he's been trying to, to, to keep from people. He, he just can't confront himself in that way. He can't risk actually being seen. He's so deeply ashamed. And so at one moment, he says, of the human condition, he says, we leave a stain, we leave a trail, we leave our imprint." Impurity, cruelty, abuse, error. There's no other way to be here. Nothing to do with disobedience, nothing to do with grace or salvation or redemption. It's in everyone, indwelling, inherent, defining. The stain that is there before its mark. So even though he you know, lives in a world where he doesn't believe in things like original sin or or grace or salvation he can't shake this feeling that there is something wrong with him there's no other way to be here and i think roth is on to something i mean you can you can ditch the old categories you can you can you know say that you've got some new enlightened thinking but you're still left with the stain that's there before it's mark and it's not because we're superstitious it's not because we're religious. It's because that is hardwired into our humanity. So you can, you can go through life looking for ways to remove the stain. You can do all kinds of things to try to avoid getting the stain on you from the outside world. You can try to even cover it up. You can try to prove to yourself, to others, that you are you know, worthy, that you are lovable, that you are valuable. But Jesus says, look, at the end of the day, you are not going to be able to shake that feeling. After he had left the crowd and entered to a house... His disciples asked him about the parable, and he says to them, Are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, it goes into their stomach and then out of the body. Jesus is quite graphic in this little example. He says, the food that you eat comes in your stomach. It doesn't go to your heart. The body uses what it needs. The rest goes out to the sewer. Nothing that makes it into the body will make you unclean. Now, keep in mind, Jesus did not live in a world that had a thing called deep fried Twinkies, right? (laughs) That is not the point that he is making. Don't get hung up on that. He goes on. What comes out of a person, that is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts arise. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside, and they are what defile a person. This laundry list of things that are the stain that is just deep down inside of us. And so he says, if you want to know what's wrong with the world, why there's so much poverty, why there's so much disease, why there is so much injustice and conflict between nations, conflict between ethnicities, between neighbors, why, why families, why relationships tear apart at the seams. If you want to know why all that is, Jesus is saying, we are what is wrong. It's not what's on the outside, it's what's in here. The heart is toxic. It's always Bent toward vandalizing shalom. That's that's what's at the root of our sickness. That's what's at all of our our strife. And the thing is, this vandalism once it gets hold, it never stays in place. It it may start in individuals, but it has a way of radiating out and spreading over people and families and systems and structures and cultures. And so Jesus says, "You have got this backwards. The deepest illnesses aren't the ones that originate outside of you. They're the one that come inside. The stain that's in your own heart." And so Jesus teaches that the Torah, look, it's this thing that's meant to shape your heart and shape your desires, shape your your inward motives and your actions. And so he tells his disciples in private, look, no matter how hard you try, if you're just about going through all of the external motions, that's not really going to deal with your soul. If you just adhere to tradition but have no love, it's only going to harden your heart. It's never going to make you feel significant. It's never going to make you feel clean, that you can come out from hiding. You're never going to shake that sense that you belong. And yet, you know, we try to do it in all kinds of ways, a thousand different ways. We look toward some outside thing that we can do to make us feel significant, to make us feel worthy. The writer Sky Jatani calls this outside-in living. And some of the things that, you know, we even dress up in our own little version of religious tradition, we tell ourselves if I, you know, stay away from these kinds of people or these kinds of influences or these kinds of substances or whatever, if I, if I dedicate my life to the right kind of activities, if I even build a good set of practices and a, and a great rule for life, then God is going to see that I'm good and I'll feel like I have arrived. I feel like I'm, I'm worthy or at least I'm cleaned up enough for God to do something with me. But Jesus says, it's not going to stick. There's always going to be somebody doing it better. And then you're right back to just not feeling good enough. You're doing all the things. Your, Your heart is getting more anxious and stressed, maybe because transformation isn't happening on the timetable you've set for yourself. And so you assume, again, the problem must be you. Joy, peace, security, they don't come. Anxiety, competition envy are in their place because you don't feel like you're living up. And don't get me wrong, I, I don't think you can get very far in the spiritual life without building a set of practices, but if you're doing them to win approval, if you're doing them as a sort of, you know, kind of a, a quid pro quo in which if I do this thing for you, God, you are obligated to give grace to me, then it's not going to change your heart. You're just working from the outside in. And maybe for you, it's something else. Maybe it's, you know, you try to get your, your sense of value and meaning by garnering influence, by garnering fame or something like that. Uh, I read an article recently about the CEO of a Finnish tech company who quit his six-figure job in order to become a YouTube influencer. And the reason he did it is because he was convinced that influence is going to be the currency of the future. And maybe he's right. There was a survey a few years ago that asked a bunch of middle school students whether they would rather be Justin Bieber's personal assistant or the president of Harvard University. By a margin of three to one, they would rather be Justin Bieber's personal assistant. Although to be fair, somebody asked the president of Harvard University and she too would rather be Justin Bieber's personal assistant. But it's just one of those ways that we try to orient our souls towards something to feel like we're enough. There's always somebody up ahead. And another way we do this is by performance, whether your arena is school or or work, gaining popularity, gaining a certain number in your bank account. But it's never going to be enough. There's a great example of this from the classic movie Chariots of Fire. You, the one, you know, with all the slow motion running and all that stuff. Yeah, that, that one. It's the story of two runners preparing for the 1924 Olympics. One of them is a man named Harold Abrahams. So uh, his, his whole experience of life has been in the shadow of anti-Semitism. And so for Abrahams, Olympic glory was about proving to the world that he mattered. And also proving to himself that he mattered. And he's, as he's preparing for this race that he has poured so much of his time and energy and passion in his life toward, uh, you know, toward running well, he begins to unburden himself to a friend an hour before the race. And he acknowledges that there is this ache that has always been there in his life, this feeling like he has forever been in pursuit, but he does not know what it is that he's chasing after. And so he says of the race, And now, in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? I've known the fear of losing, but now I'm almost too frightened to win. I think that's part of what Jesus is getting at, standing at this precipice of immortality. He comes to the face to face with this reality that even if he wins, it's not going to be enough. And we all know what it's like to be in pursuit, but to not know what it is that we are chasing after us. And for some of us, it is work that is the the ten lonely seconds or the seventy lonely hours to justify our whole existence. But if that's true, then rest is just out of the question. You'll never be able to rest because you're always wondering, am I enough? Have I done enough? Do I matter now? All of these outside-in ways of improving ourselves, they don't deliver. They don't remove the stain. Prophet Jeremiah puts it starkly when he writes, although you wash yourself with soap and use an abundance of cleansing powder, the stain of your guilt is still before me declares the Sovereign Lord. So then what's the alternative to self-justification? What's the alternative to living from the outside in? Well, unlike Matthew and Luke, uh, Mark does not break the fourth wall very often. He doesn't talk directly to the people who are reading uh, he prefers to not enter into the stage and you know take a part in his own play. He prefers to just show you the details rather than tell you. And so when he does break through with an aside or an editorial comment, it's worth taking note of, and he does this in verse nineteen. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean." Now, I want you to note, Mark doesn't write here, Jesus said all foods were clean all the time. There never was such a thing as unclean food. He, he's not saying, look, you guys were wrong to worry about this. You didn't, you didn't get the point at all. Uh, eat up, enjoy. You know, don't get hung up on this stuff anymore. You, you misunderstood the point altogether. Jesus is not saying that the cleanliness laws, laws are, are things that we have you know, uh, grown past. They're, they're outdated. We moved on. He's not some judge you know, offering an authoritative opinion here. That's not what happened. Mark writes, Jesus declared all foods clean. This is, A king issuing a decree, Jesus is saying, as of this moment, all foods are clean. I am the one who created the world and all that is in it. I'm the one who calmed the storm. I'm the one who provided food in the wilderness. I'm the one who brought a girl back from the precipice of death. And now I'm telling you that all foods are clean. And this is the thing that Mark wants you to see about it. tucked away in the middle of this story in in his gospel. He wants you to see that Jesus has this astonishing regard for Scripture. He quotes it all the time. He considers it binding, authoritative. He's frustrated at the Pharisees for the ways that they they don't live it out. And the ritual purity and cleanliness laws, they, they are part of Scripture. Jesus is not looking at them and saying, look, that's outdated. I'm vetoing this. We've evolved past it. What he is saying is that all of these laws, they have now been fulfilled. Their purpose, to get you to move toward spiritual purity, this has happened. And it's not because of something you do or kept doing. It's because of something that I do. It's because of who I am. So the question, how do you deal with the sense that no matter what you do, you can't get rid of the stain You come into the presence of the one who can. The first time Jesus ran afoul of the Pharisees, it was over the matter of him healing an unclean man in the synagogue. And then right after that, Jesus goes out and has a party with sinners and tax collectors. And the assumption was, and often is, that being around things that are not holy will make you not holy. But in every single instance, Being around the unclean does not make Jesus unclean. In every instance, Jesus' holiness brings about healing and righteousness to those who were once considered unclean. His holiness brought holiness to the ordinary things of the world. His healing, His power, His righteousness brought righteousness to the broken things of the world, and that is what He does to us. That's the only thing that's going to clean out your wounded hearts. It's the only thing that's going to clean you from the inside out and allow you to reorient your desires toward him. And until we understand that, until we get that in our bones, we're never going to be able to live free. Everything is just going to be about trying to justify ourselves. Well, I mentioned that there are two runners in Chariots of Fire. There's a second one. And in many ways, Eric Liddell is Abraham's opposite. He is the one who's actually favored to win the 100 meters. He's the one who, who terrifies Abrahams the most. And for little, running isn't about self-justification. For him, running is pure joy. It's as natural to him as breathing. And while he loves to run, he has this deep sense of call to missionary service in China, He has this sense that, you know, training for the Olympics is actually gonna delay his departure. And for him, one of the the conflicts that he feels throughout the film is whether to even go at all. And one day he explains to his sister that he is gonna go, and she struggles to understand how he would put that before his calling to run. And in the movie he says this I believe God made me for a purpose for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Although he says it in a Scottish accent, so it's awesome. (laughs) For little, the, the decision to run isn't about proving his worth. It's about his delight in God, the God who has already accepted him. And so the drama of the film becomes less and less about the competition between these two men and more about the different views of life, more about the the ways that that they understand how they're going to make a mark in the world and what really matters about their identity. It comes to the point that Little finds out that the 100-meter race is going to take place on a Sunday and he is a Westminster Scot. Running on the Sabbath is something he's not willing to do. So he gets mocked, he gets ridiculed, he gets all kinds of pressure from the Olympic Committee, from even heads of state in England to, to run in the race, to sacrifice his conviction, but he refuses to run the the, the race that he is all but guaranteed to win. And he agrees instead as a compromise to run in the 400 meters that doesn't take place on a Sunday, something that he hasn't trained for, something that he has not even considered a chance of meddling in. And that clears the way for Abrahams to run the hundred meters and to justify his existence. And Abrahams does run and he does win the gold. But he doesn't find the rest that he's looking for. He always has this nagging question did the fastest man run the race? And he can't free himself from this work of self justification. Little, on the other hand, was freed and he freely chose not to run because he had already found his rest. And then in a move that ended up stunning the world, he wins the 400 gold. It's possible to be weary even when we're at rest. It's possible to be rested even when we are at work. Life from the outside in always feels like a way to justify yourself. Life from the inside out is a way of living out of that rest. Only one of them is going to set you free. Well, Mark ends this story, hanging in the air, Jesus saying that the only way you can be clean is by dealing with the heart. No amount of ritual purity, no amount of, of external cleanliness, no matter how clean the hands of the priests are, you're not going to be able to remove the stain that's in here. But that's because Jesus knows where the story is going with Him on a cross. It's a way of saying, I will remove the stain from you. One day the sacrifice will be over. One day the law will be fulfilled. There will be a new high priest, and He will make the sacrifice forever. And He will be the one to clean your hearts from the inside out.